You want to make it redundant, not just yet, mate. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning, and I hope you've had a good week. I see a few of us are, uh, are on the road by the looks of it, uh, enjoying the long weekend. So, yeah, it uh, looks like there's a few families away and uh, taking some time off. But for those of you who are here, I hope you are blessed by this morning's service and that you're blessed by the uh, message this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 6 to 15 this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise... She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard, that the, they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning seeking to know more of you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would grant us your grace, that we might understand your truth. And this morning we ask that our hearts would be laid bare before it, that your spirit will be working even now, not only teaching us, Father, but revealing our own selves to us and also meeting every need that we have. So we ask this morning that you'd be glorified in this message, that, that we would put you in the right place, that you'd be first in our lives, that you'd be the centre of our hearts. And Lord, that the name of our Saviour would be lifted up this morning because we desire to glorify him for what he has done for us. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Have you ever played a game, and it could be a game of chess or a game of tennis or a game of where you thought you had it won? And then right at that last minute, the person pulls off some unbelievable stroke of genius or a fantastic shot and they beat you. That's happened to me a few times, I must admit. Well, today we're looking at, we're continuing to look at this game, this particular um, uh, thing that Satan got himself into. He, he got himself into a competition with God. His desire, if you remember from our previous sermons, his desire was that he would take the very throne of God. He envied God. He envied his position. And he, he hated Adam and Eve for what God had given them. So his desire was that he would uh, deceive Adam and Eve, steal the dominion of the earth from them, and convince the angels that rebellion was a good idea and that they could take the very throne of God and not have to answer to him anymore. Interesting thing is, this Bible that we read 
that we have in our hands tells us the outcome of the game. It explains to us how it started, explains to us how he got involved and how he entered into this particular uh, competition with God, but it also tells us how it will end, you see. So, in the end, regardless of how complicated, regardless of how much effort the devil puts in to trying to defeat God, God already knows the end from the beginning. He can't win. And that's the comfort that we have, that God is always ahead. God always knows the end from the beginning. And even when it comes to ourselves, you might feel as if your own life is some sort of a game that just keeps on going back and forth and you don't know the outcome of your own life. But rest assured, God does. If you've put your faith in Christ this morning, God knows the outcome of your life. And you can trust the promises that he gives. Today, I would like us to look at and I would like us to reflect upon the fact that whatever God says in anticipation or in advance, you can know with all surety that he will fulfill what he promises. There is absolutely no way that when God says this will happen, that it won't. There is no way. Because God's character and God's knowledge and his power and his, and his, and his uh, spread and his, and his influence is so great that there is nothing that the devil can do or anyone else can do to take away or negate any of his promises. The Bible tells us that we aren't to make oaths, that we aren't to swear by anything in heaven or on earth. And the reason that we, can, we shouldn't be making oaths and swearing by anything is because we don't know from day to day whether we can actually fulfill the obligations that we have. So to, prom to make promises and to swear on things such as the Bible and, and, and heaven's throne and all those things is a pointless exercise because Jesus says we can't change one colour of the hair on our head and we still can't. We can colour it artificially, but we can't actually change it. Interesting, after 2,000 years, we still can't do that. But God can because God not only has the ability, he has the knowledge and the foresight to anticipate every possible move in advance. And this morning we're going to see just that. So having tempted man, having tempted Adam and Eve to fall by deceiving them, Satan believed he had secured an important victory in his quest to take the throne of God. But then he fails to take the throne of God. You see, in his, in his desire to, to get the angels to come on board with him and, and, and basically sell the story to them that they don't have to bow the knee to God anymore, if they come along with him, they can be their own gods, just as he promised Adam and Eve that they could be gods as well. He failed. So today, in this passage, and we'll look at this particular passage, we're going to see God's judgment upon the serpent and the promise that he made. You see... God's judgment upon the serpent, upon the devil himself, is also promised to us. So in judging, God actually has promised us that he will rectify the situation. Let's look at verse 6 again. Let's look at verse 6 to 8. Let's see how the fall of man unfolded. And what resulted? So it says there, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. You ever tried making yourself an apron of fig leaves? Ever rub some fig leaves on your skin? Nah. It's not a very nice feeling. Not only are they prickly, but you tend to get a bit of a rash. Okay? So their, their first choice at covering themselves up with, uh, with fig leaves was probably not the, the, the wisest thing to do. But hey, they had just done something they knew they weren't supposed to do and they were probably fretting a bit. 
They were afraid. You see, they'd never experienced this sort of thing before. And what happened to them is actually tragic when you think about what happened. You see, I've explained to you that these were, the Bible says that they were completely innocent. They were unaware of good and bad, unaware of good and evil. So what happened to Adam and Eve was akin to putting two five-year-olds or six-year-olds in front of a computer, turning on the internet, and then showing them every good and bad thing on that internet in one go. You know what's on that internet. So imagine your own children or children of that age being exposed to that type of evil. Not only were they ashamed about what they had seen, about what they had understood now, but the Bible says they became embarrassed of their own nakedness. They weren't any more innocent children. All of a sudden they became adults in one go. And they would have struggled to understand how to deal with that. So it says that they, they, were, they were ashamed of themselves and they sewed these fig leaves together, made themselves aprons because they, they had obtained knowledge that they weren't supposed to have. So they hid themselves from God, which is a natural thing that people do when they sin. The natural thing that people do is they go and hide themselves and have done something wrong, hoping that, that God won't notice or hoping that they won't be caught out. And God says, uh, they, they, it says they, they heard the voice of God walking in the garden. That's interesting, wasn't it? They heard the voice of God walking in the garden. I believe that, that the Lord was actually walking physically in that garden. I believe that this, what, what, this person that was walking in, in, in Eden with them was the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son of God. Now, when I say the pre-incarnate, when, when Christ, uh, when the Son of God became carnate, it means that he took on flesh, okay? So the pre-incarnate uh, uh, Christ or, or a Son of God is a pre or a pre-existing form of Jesus. He wasn't called Jesus then because he wasn't born of Mary yet. But he walked with them in the garden and they could hear his voice audibly and he would speak with them. And did he not know what they had done? Yeah, he knew what they had done. He he was he was perfectly aware of what happened. But the Bible says here that in the cool of the evening, it says in the cool of the day, which would have been after the sun had started to, to go down and, the, and the, the day had begun to cool down, on Eden's last day of glory, they heard his voice calling them. And they hid themselves. And now we see man's excuse and we hear woman's excuse about what they did. And we'll see God's judgment on the serpent. And we won't finish... This whole, um, we'll finish this passage today, but we have yet to see God's judgment upon man and, and woman. Today we only look at one judgment. Okay? So God answers. Sorry, man answers, and he says in verse 9 And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So the Lord God calls out to Adam in the garden and asks one simple question, Where are you? And it wasn't that God didn't know where he was, but he wanted Adam to answer. He wanted Adam to reveal himself, his own position. So in asking, where are you, in a sense, he's, he's also asking, where are you at? And notice that he calls Adam. doesn't call Eve. He calls Adam. Because Adam was the one who had the main responsibility here. He was the one who was responsible for his wife. He was the one who was given the command directly by God about not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And his answer is telling because he says that he was afraid and he was naked 
Uh, so he hid himself and something was wrong. Adam had never experienced fear before. He'd ne- he would never have experienced fear of the Lord. God knew exactly what, what had happened because he should have also been unaware that he was naked. So he's, God says to him once again, a, a question to reveal for him to reveal his own heart and reveal his own position. Who told you this? Did someone tell you this, that you're naked? Or have you eaten of that tree that I told you you shouldn't eat? And Adam doesn't answer these questions, really. And what does he, what does he do? Typical men, you blame the wife. It's the woman you gave me. She's the one. Ask her. She's the one who really messed this whole thing up over here. Um, so he doesn't really answer the Lord. He, his answer is what we would call today a bit of a cop-out. A bit of a cop-out. He handballed it to someone else and said, ask them. That's, they're the one who, who started the ball rolling over here. I'm just, a, I'm just an innocent bystander who got swept up in this whole thing. He didn't take any responsibility as he should have. But then again, children with a sin nature use the same reasoning, don't they? They'll blame someone else. They'll look, they'll look to deflect um, responsibility to someone else other than themselves. You see, do you remember last, last sermon I, I, I shared with you that Satan's wisdom became corrupted because the Bible says of his beauty? So he looked at himself and he, and he saw this unbelievably wise, powerful and beautiful being, compared himself to others and said, you know, I don't deserve to be here. I need, I need to be in a much better position than what I am now. Um, and then he began to justify in his own heart why he should be in that position. And I, and I looked at ourselves and how people justify their own sin and how they do the same and how when people look at themselves and pride is lifted up and you want something that you're not supposed to have, you'll find an excuse and a way to get it. So your, your wisdom becomes corrupted. You look for excuses. You look for loopholes. You look for ways to get around the truth. The Bible says that because of sin, wisdom becomes corrupted. Truth becomes corrupted. And, and Adam's wisdom had already become corrupted. Why? Because he knew he had done wrong. He simply should have said, I messed up. I did the thing that you told me not to do. But instead, he was looking already for someone else to to pass the blame to. Wisdom had become corrupted. So the Lord asked the woman in verse 13. He says, The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. You see a pattern happening over here? The woman now offers the serpent as the excuse for her error. And it says, and she says that interesting word, she uses the word, he beguiled me. In other words, he charmed me, he enchanted me in a deceptive sort of way. And the Bible says that Eve was deceived. The Bible says that Adam wasn't deceived. The Bible says that Eve was deceived. So she was somehow tricked in this whole thing in her conversation with, uh, with the devil and she blames him for that deception. So man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent. Neither really had a legitimate excuse because they knew enough that they shouldn't have gone you know, near that tree and eaten it. They both had done the wrong and neither of them took the blame. And you will notice that the, the, the Lord God doesn't question the serpent. The serpent had a conversation. The serpent was the one who did all most of the talking here, who did most of the convincing. And the Lord God doesn't go to the serpent and say, what is this that thou hast done? Because the Lord God already knew what he'd done. The Lord God knew perfectly what had happened. He knew that Satan had... He knew that the plan that Satan had already hatched in his mind and what he had in his heart. So the Lord God says this to the serpent. He said, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. 
Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now you might think it's a bit rough on the serpent. It's an animal, isn't it? So God's judgment on the serpent is a judgment on the serpent for allowing itself to be used by Satan. To be used as a tool for his scheme. And the serpent would pay for that particular error by, by being changed in its form forever. God changed it from its original design. The snake as we know it now, which has existed for thousands of years, would become to, uh, would, would, we would know it eternally as a reminder of Satan's deception and the curse that fell on it. So the, the, the snake travelling along its belly and eating dust would be a constant reminder also to Satan of his end and where he had gone, you see. So Satan's use of the serpent and the serpent's change and its, and, its, and its ways would be a reminder that Satan had reduced himself from the heights of heaven where he had glory and honour and great responsibility to be brought down to the earth on his belly. And God repeats a number of times in the Bible that he would be cast down and he'd be, and he'd be thrown down to the ground. And people would look at him in horror. So the, the snake or the serpent is a constant reminder of Satan's judgment, which would come in the future. He was no longer, he would no longer be the exalted cherub, but all future generations would see the slithering snake as, as a contemptible and degraded being. Now, there's an amazing part of God's judgment on the serpent we see now, which is also a prophecy about the future and Satan's future judgment. Not only is it, is it a judgment on Satan, it's actually a promise to man that even though man had forfeited, had given up, had been tricked, and, and he'd lost the dominion of this, this world to Satan and made himself a slave to sin and to Satan, that one day man would actually defeat Satan. A man would defeat Satan the same way. And that man would take back what is rightfully ours. Look what it says in verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Interesting verse, isn't it? I will put enmity. Well, enmity is hatred. Enmity is conflict. Between thee, which is the serpent, which is really Satan he's talking to, and the woman. So I'm going to put conflict between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now, who's he talking to? Is he talking just to Eve and the, the serpent at that stage? Is he saying that, that now the serpent and the woman, uh, it means that, that, the, that, that Eve will always hate the serpent because of what the way it had tricked her? Is that, where, is that what that, uh, that verse is talking about? Well, it could mean that. And it probably means that as well. Or does it have a greater connotation? Is there a greater meaning for this whole thing? And this is what I'd like. This, I'm going to park myself in this verse for the rest of the sermon. Because I want us to understand what this verse actually means. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at who this seed is. Or what this seed is of the serpent and of the woman. And who, who this woman is that he's talking to. Is it just Eve he's talking to? I want you to notice something interesting. It says that, that God will put conflict or hatred between the woman and the serpent, or the woman and Satan. And it says it will put conflict between her seed and his seed. Between her seed and his seed. You see, the term seed of a woman here is very telling. 
And I want you to keep that particular thing in mind. It's the seed of a woman which is in conflict with the seed of the serpent. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We'll begin to see how the Bible defines that seed. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is a verse you've heard many times before. We bring it up every Christmas. I've already given you the answer about what it's referring to. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says here, therefore, we got all that? We got that? The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a pretty big sign. I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to do something that's going to stand out, and you're going to be amazed. I'm going to cause a virgin to bear a child, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You see, a virgin conceiving is exactly the same as a woman bearing a seed. Do you understand? Do you see the link between those two? It's not the, man, the seed of man. It's the seed of a woman that's going to crush the serpent's head later on. So a virgin conceiving is once again a, a re repetition of the promise he gave back in the Garden of Eden about the, the seed of a woman crushing the serpent's head. A virgin conceiving or a woman producing seed or a child on her own is a big sign. Now, where is this fulfilled? What happened with this? God says, I'm going to give you this sign. Well, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll see the fulfillment of this sign that God had spoken about at least 700 years before. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or in this way, okay? When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, that means engaged, when she was engaged to him, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put away privately or privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken to the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. So the birth of Jesus, born of a virgin, was a direct fulfillment of that promise that God made, that behold, I shall, I shall show you a sign, a virgin shall conceive. And it's also a direct fulfillment of the promise that he made upon the judgment on, and the judgment on, on the serpent and Satan. That the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head and he would bruise his heel. Jesus was that seed of the woman. He was the one who would defeat the devil. He would crush his head and the devil would bruise his heel. And what does that mean? Well, if, if someone gives you a hit on the head and someone gives you a hit on the foot, which is the worst one? The head. Because the head is a fatal wound. The head is the one that, that is decisive. And the devil was able to, to have Jesus crucified, but he recovered. He rose again from that wound 
The devil's wound is not going to be something he can recover from. You see, Jesus' victory over the devil is final and complete. So while the devil struck at, struck at Jesus like a serpent and got him on the heel, it wasn't forever fatal. It was fatal for a while. But because death and hell could not hold him, death could not hold Jesus, um, the devil was defeated. In that. And we'll talk a bit about more about that next week. So Jesus was the seed that was promised back in that garden. That seed would be the one who would win back what was rightfully his. And he would be the man who would defeat Satan, whereas our original parents succumbed to him. They gave in to him. And that's why the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. The first Adam had the job of protecting his wife and following what God had told him, and he failed. Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. Whereas the first Adam, the Bible says, is earthly and made from the earth. The second Adam, the Bible says, is spiritual and has come from heaven. This is the second Adam who defeated the devil at his own game. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 because when Jesus defeated the devil, when he was crucified on that cross and he rose again on the third day, the Bible says that he defeated the devil forevermore. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 then goes on to explain to us what that actually meant. Or what that means for the world. Now look at it. Look at the promise here. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Do you remember when I said to you that when Satan managed to deceive Adam and Eve, he, he stole the dominion of his, of his planet from them? And from mankind who was given the rule of everything. They handed it to him on a silver platter. They then, be, they then became servants and slaves to him. And mankind has been a slave to Satan forever. Ever since then. That's why the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. That's why even now we struggle against principalities and powers enthroned in high places. He has set up his network all over the place. He has those third, that third of the angels who are backing him up, who are organising all the stuff in the background, and they have kept man under control and under bondage for all that time. But Jesus came to break that, to break the power of the devil, and he did that by allowing himself to be crucified, actually going to that cross purposefully to die for the sins of the world, for yours and mine, and then rising on that third day and defeating death. So that the devil no longer has the power of death, but that control has come to the Lord. So Jesus is the one who would be the rightful ruler of this world. He, is now, he now holds the title deed back again in his hand. And Satan knows it's only a matter of time before he loses everything. But who's the woman? So we know the seed is Jesus. We know specifically that the seed is Jesus. But who's this woman? Is it Mary now? Is Mary the woman that he's talking about? Or was it Eve? Well, Mary was the virgin. So was that... Did that mean that where it says that, that the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and, and he would put enmity between the woman and the serpent? Was that Mary that he's talking about? Hating and, and being in conflict with the devil? Or was it Eve? Or was it something else? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You see, that, that promise 
that God made, that he would put enmity between the woman and the serpent, doesn't make sense if it was Eve, and it doesn't make sense if it was Mary. So it has to be another woman. Okay? Is that confusing enough for you? We've already got two women. We're going to get a third now. Okay? You women, you thought you weren't actually, you know... Important in the Bible. Hey, you know, there's women all over the place in the Bible, and, and this one's crucially important. But Mary is representative of another woman. And there's a reason, there's a very good reason. You know those genealogies the Bible gives? You ever read those genealogies you know, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament? It just gives one name after the other, after the other, after the other. And you think to yourself, Lord, why are you giving us all these names? And you ever wondered why in Matthew it starts off with a genealogy? And it says, well, it starts off with the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham begat Isaac. In verse 2, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. This gives us a line of descendants all the way, in this particular case, from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And when you go to Luke, go to Luke with me for a moment. In Luke chapter 3, we find another genealogy. Okay, so the, this first genealogy, you, you get the impression that all right, it's, 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 it's giving us all the way from Abraham to Jesus and it's, and it's explaining who, who the, the, he was the father of him and he was the father of him and he was the father of him. And then you finally get to Joseph in that, in that particular passage. And then it says Jesus was supposedly, I think that's the one there. No, so that's in Luke, that's in Luke. Luke 3, Luke 3.23. We won't read the whole thing because there's, there's about 75, genealogy, 75 names, so we won't go through all of them. But it starts off in verse 20, 23, and it says, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, right? Being as was supposed. Now, that's a very important part of that, because it was supposed that he was the son of Joseph. But he wasn't really the son of Joseph, was he? He was... God's son directly, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Mathat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Malchi, which was the son of Jana, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of uh, Mattathias, which was the son of Amos. Now go down to verse 37. It goes all the way down to, look at verse 37, which was a son of Methuselah, which was a son of Enoch, which was a son of Jared, which was a son of Malaleel, which was a son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was a son of Seth, which was a son of Adam, which was the son of God. They've given us the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now, I've counted those up. There's about 75 names, right, that cover a period of about 4,000 years. Okay? We've got the names of every descendant of Jesus. Now, why would God go to all the trouble of giving us these lines? And, in, and, it, and let me show, share something with you. They're not the same. They're not the same. Luke's genealogy is different to... Matthew's genealogy. Now, why would God give us two different genealogies? You know why? Because he gave us both lines, through Mary and through Joseph. The second line demonstrates the line of Mary through which Christ was born. And upon inspection, if you do a bit of uh, looking up yourself, you'll find that once it reaches King David, it splits because both Joseph and Mary were both descendants of King David. You see, God made a promise to King David. There was a promise made that upon his throne, a ruler, a future ruler would sit who would govern and who would rule forevermore this world. And that was Jesus. So from that point, these, gene these genealogies split. And then you find Joseph and Mary, both descendants of King David, who fulfilled that thing because whoever sat on that throne, whoever sits on the throne of David, has to be a descendant of his, and Jesus is the perfect descendant of King David. Oh, there are a few other things to share because of a few other things that, that where, where men messed up 
where kings messed up and God, God actually gives a judgment. But God is unbelievable with the way he actually fulfills his promises. Now, why does God give these lineages? Why are they so important? I believe that the, the line through whom the Messiah would be born was one of the most critical components of God's promise and his plan. God, in order to fulfill his promise, right? If Jesus was the, the seed of that woman who would be born, God had to preserve a line of people all the way from Adam to Jesus. Do you understand? He had to preserve a line of people who would remain faithful to him. And if that line was broken, if that line became uh, corrupted in some way, then the Messiah couldn't be born. And God had to preserve a line for about almost 4,000 years in order for Jesus to be born. You know what that line is? That's the woman. That line represents this woman that God married himself to. Because the Bible speaks of Israel, okay, and God choosing Israel to be his wife. And the Bible says that God says, I, you are married to me, you are my wife. And Israel wasn't very faithful many times. But you know something? Within Israel, within Israel, there was always a faithful line of people. And God had to make sure as a good husband that he preserved his wife, protected his wife, and he did it all the way down to when Jesus was actually born. And it even got to a stage, because the devil knew about this, right? The devil knew that somewhere down the line, there'd be someone who'd be born who would defeat him. He knew that. So what do you think the devil's going to try and do? He's going to try his very best to turn people away from God as much as possible, especially that line that seems to be following God's path. So for 75 generations, for four, almost 4,000 years, the devil is doing his absolute best to corrupt this line to get them to turn away from God. And this line, which starts all the way back from Adam, is most clearly represented in what we call Israel, whom God chose to be his special people in this world, through whom he would bring and deliver the Messiah that he promised back in the garden. And God amplified his promise to mankind in the Garden of Eden through a special man who he called his own friend. You see, the promise that he made to to Adam and Eve and the judgment he would put in the devil, he actually repeated it again to someone and he said, I'm going to involve you in this thing now. I'm going to get you involved. You know something? Because I'm going to call you my friend. And you're going to be, you're going to be instrumental in this whole thing. And the Bible says that God chose this man who had great faith in the Lord to be the father of a people through whom that promise would come and through whom the whole world would be blessed. And most of you are aware of a man called Abraham. Abraham, the Bible says, God called his friend. And God made a special promise to Abraham. Do you remember when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Right? So, so Abraham was about 100 years old, I think. God kept promising Abraham, you're going to have a son, and through that son, you're going to be a blessing to the world. I'm going to, I'm going to make your descendants as, as, as many as the stars of the sky and as much as the sand on all the seashores of the world. I'm going to bless you, and you, through you, I'm going to bless this whole world. So Abraham's almost about 100 years old. I think he's, he turned 100 years old, and God came to him and said, I'm about to give you this, this child, and then he does. And he has Isaac. Yeah. Abraham messed up a bit because he thought he was he thought of doing it his own way at one stage. But God fulfilled the promise that he was going to make to Abraham and he did. And he had a child called Isaac. When, he, when this Isaac was, was old enough, God says to him, Now, Abraham, what I want you to do is I want you to take your son, the one you love, called Isaac, the one I've promised you all these years, and I want you to take him up to a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him over there. 
And Abraham had such great faith in God. He believed so much in God that he would do what was always right. That he takes his son, gets him to carry up his own sticks, right? He makes his son carry his own, the, the sticks on his own back and they, they go up to a mountain and there's no sacrifice up there, but he ties his son, puts him on top of a, of a, of a thing and he's about to kill him with a, with a, with a knife. And just as he's about to, to put the knife in, God says, stop. Now I know that you really trust me. Now I know that you have faith in me. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. And I want to show you what God promised Abraham. Because this is an amazing part of the story of this line that the Saviour came down through. Genesis 22.15, it says there, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. How's that for a promise? How would you like to hear that from God? Now that is a huge promise that he made to Abraham. Because of Abraham's faithfulness, the Lord swears an oath. Remember I said to you, we shouldn't be swearing oaths. We shouldn't be swearing by anything, because we can't even promise what, we, what tomorrow is going to is what we're going to be able to do okay but when god swears an oath you better believe he's going to keep it and he says to abraham i'm going to swear an oath that i'm going to multiply your seed your children as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the shores and and your seed shall conquer his enemies he shall you know what it says there it shall he shall thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies you know what it meant to possess the gate of your enemy do you remember the old cities, the way they used to... They used to be actually surrounded by a wall, right? And the most important part of that wall was that gate. And that gate was, in many cases, the place where they actually did... did they would rule, that they would actually have uh, uh, courts and everything like that. That gate was a very important place, okay? But whoever possessed that gate possessed the city. So God promises that the seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, he doesn't say many seeds, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This seed will conquer his enemy, and in this seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who is this seed? You've already, you already probably know. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says there, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And they hung Jesus on a tree. Figuratively, they hung him on two pieces of wood. That the blessing of Abraham might come onto the Gentiles. That's us. Okay, That blessing of Abraham, that promise that God made Abraham, would come to us through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereunto. Now, in other words, Paul says over here, even in earthly terms, if you make a contract with someone, once you've signed it and sealed it, you can't then go changing it. You can't actually change the whole thing later on. You can't add to it or take away from it. But in verse 16 it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. You know why? Because God made a covenant. God made the oath. And when God signs the contract, 
No one can actually change it. So it says here to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. You see, Christ came as the seed of Abraham. He came from the line of Abraham and he came in that line all the way from the promise in that garden, from Eve all the way down. And Abraham was in the middle there somewhere and God says, I'm going to get you involved in this thing now. You know that line that I'm going to bring my Messiah, my promised Saviour into this world? Because you're faithful to me, it's going to come through your line. And in your line, I'm going to bless this entire world because of your faithfulness to them or to me. And in many cases, we find Israel, who was who is the descendants of Abraham. So you had Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob's, uh, Jacob's children and they became Israel. You find Israel many times being unfaithful. And you think to yourself, what's going on? Like, these are God's chosen people. Have you ever asked yourself why they, they kept on falling over and over and over again? They, they went, they, they came. God sends them into, uh, into bondage. He sends them into Babylon. He sends them all over the place. And they still don't learn a lesson. And they're still falling. And, st- and they still come up. And even now, they have, a, they have some sort of a veil, the Bible says, over their eyes. They can't see. But there was always, always a faithful line in Israel. Always a faithful line in Israel. Um, Turn me to Romans chapter 11, verse 12. Because I want you to understand a very important principle. That even though on the outside Israel looks unfaithful, on the inside there is always a faithful remnant that has preserved the faith in God and has carried it through all the way down to when the Messiah was born. Look at Romans 11 verse 2. It says, God God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. That's Israel. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he made intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. So Elijah was, was saying to God, God, they're killing all thy prophets. And dig down thine altars and destroyed the altars of God. And I am left alone and they seek my life. So Elijah was going to God. He was a prophet of God. And he said, I'm the last one. I'm the only one who's faithful here. God, they're all unfaithful. But look at God's answer. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Within Israel, God has always preserved a faithful view. There might be 7,000, there might be 2,000, there might be 1,000. But you know something? God has managed to preserve a faithful line for 4,000 years, all the way down from Eve to Jesus, and he still preserves a faithful now. Do you know that great chapter on faith in Hebrews where it says... By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Then it lists, by faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Isaac. Jacob. Joseph. Moses. Rahab. Gideon. Barak. Samson. Jephthah. David. Samuel. And so on and so on. They represent that faithful line. They represent that faithful wife. Who was betrothed to God. Who was married to God. And God protected all the way through. They are the example of a spiritual Israel, a line of people, a generation which preserved the word of the God, which, which gave us that Bible. Did you know that, that it was Israel that gave us that Bible? It was the, the, the descendants of Abraham who were charged with the job of recording the words of God and giving it to us today. You think God did the job of... of of making sure that that line stayed faithful. He did, because if he didn't, if he couldn't, we wouldn't have that Bible today. And we couldn't trust it today. So not only was God able to preserve that line of people through whom the Messiah, from the fleshly point of view, would be born, 
But through this same people, God was able to deliver his word uncorrupted to us today, 6,000 years later. It's not a bad promise. Did he keep his promise? Oh, yeah. He kept his promise. There is a spiritual Israel. And I want you to turn, turn with me to one final passage to describe them, and that's Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Almost done. This is at the end of the book, right? Revelation chapter 12, it says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. This is giving us now the panoramic view of the Bible. Okay? There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne." Read the rest of that, that chapter in your, own, in your own time, if you get a chance. An amazing chapter, because it tells you God's promise. It gives us a panoramic view of that promised seed that God gave to Eve. He promised it to Eve through the line of Abraham. And this woman that God says his, his, was betrothed and married to him like a wife, God preserved all the way down and it says that she was travailing in birth, ready to be delivered. And you know something? The devil was there ready to destroy as soon as he was about to be born. We find that when Jesus was about to be born. Do you remember the passage where it says that they sent those soldiers into Bethlehem and they destroyed the children? And it's that Rachel weepeth for her children. The devil has tried from the beginning to stop God's plan to stop God's promise, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. But imagine how difficult it would have been. God, with God, nothing's difficult. But imagine all the turns and twists and all the different things that, that God had to take into account to preserve a line of people, to keep them faithful, to have them there all the way to, to when Jesus was born. So there would be enmity between the serpent and this woman throughout all the ages because the devil hated the woman. The devil didn't want this Messiah to be born, so he would do everything in his power to stop that from happening. So that's why there's enmity all the way down from when Eve came and devil, the devil thought to himself, oh, her first son. You know who, who, who Adam and Eve's first child was? It was Cain. And so the devil manages to inspire Cain to kill his own brother. So he thinks, done, done and dusted. I've just managed to, to get her son who, to become a murderer and the other one's dead too, who was, uh, who was um, the faithful one, who, was, who seemed to be the more holy one. The devil thought, I've got it now, I've done it now, I've, I've stopped God's plan from happening. But then they have Seth. And God then uses Seth and his descendants to keep, to keep that line going. You see, the devil has done everything over thousands of years to stop Jesus from being born. When Jesus was born, he knew he was in, in massive trouble. So he thought to himself, I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill him. And he did. He managed to inspire the people in his generation to say that Jesus, or to think that Jesus was such a threat to them, that they had to get rid of him. And they did. And they sent him to a cross. They managed to use the most ungodly system ever, ever devised, the most terrible uh, way to kill people, to crucify the Son of God. Because he was the one that God had promised. And the devil knew it. But he still didn't win. Because you know that last stroke, when the devil thought that he'd done it, and he'd killed Jesus, and he was buried and cold in a tomb, on that third day, he came up again. Amen. You can't keep a good man down. 
And we are here today because he rose. We are here today because he won that victory. He couldn't be defeated. He couldn't be held down. And God's promise right back in the garden was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And God preserved and can keep every promise that he has ever made. And, he, and you know there's something? There are some promises that God hasn't finished fulfilling yet. And we have those to look forward to. You know, there's a, the Bible says that, that there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I'll just read this passage out to you because I want you to understand something. Jesus says to the people who were the religious leaders of the day, it was the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the guys who should have known the Bible. They should have known it inside out. They should have recognised that he was there. He was the one who God promised and then promised again and again and again throughout the whole Bible. God kept promising and saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. He told them in so many ways. And Jesus says, Jesus was finally born and he's in front of these religious leaders and he says, I know that you're Abraham's seed. I know that you're descendants of Abraham. You're, you're, you're in the flesh. You are Israelites. But you seek to kill me. You want to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father. And you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. And then they said unto him, We be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Many would have been entrusted with the word of God to recognise the coming of the Messiah, the fulfilment of that promise. All they wanted to do was to kill him. They weren't of God. Their father was the devil. And as you look out there today, there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who are either of the devil, whose father is the devil, and who are enemies of God. Or there are those who have been, who have been freed from that sin and that bondage and have now been adopted into God's family and are children of God. My question to you this morning is, which one are you? Which one are you? You can't be in the middle. There is no half a seed here. You are either the seed of the devil or you are a seed of Christ. I'll talk next week about how he defeated the devil. But understand something. God gave all his promises to Christ, his son. But the Bible says that Christ has a bride. Right? Christ is preparing a bride and that bride is every believer who puts their faith in him. And just as God preserved his people down throughout the ages so that the, that the Son of God could be born, you know something? Our Saviour preserves us all the way to the end. If you've put your faith in Christ this morning, you have no reason to fear. Because he is the same one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He is the same one who kept his promises all the way down throughout the ages. He is the one who has defeated the devil already. And if you are in his hand, then you are in the Father's hand and no one can ever take you out. But are you in his hand this morning? Are you one of his? Because if you are not one of his, the Bible says you are of the world and ultimately you are of the devil. So this morning, if there is any doubt in your mind about where you stand before God, please make sure. Please make sure. You can make sure today with one prayer. You can make sure this day. But the Bible says that if you believe in your heart 
in Jesus Christ and that he, God has, has risen him from the dead and you confess that with your mouth, you will be saved. If you haven't done that today, then you're not saved. It's not a process that you have to hope for the rest of your life that maybe one day God, maybe one day you can become acceptable to God. It doesn't work like that. Every person down that line, all the way from Seth down to when Christ was born, you know how they did it? They simply trusted God. The Bible says that God called Abraham his friend. You know something? Jesus calls us his friends. Are you his friend this morning? Please answer that question in your own mind and in your own heart. And don't let it drag on anymore because we don't know tomorrow what it may bring. God bless you all. Thank you. Have a good